Hi, this is Basketball Hall of Famer Nancy Lieberman, and you're listening to The Monarchist. I'm Aaron. And I'm Mike. And you're listening to The Monarchist Podcast. Our guests today patrol the sidelines for ODU hoops from 2001 to 2013 winning three CAA championships and appearing in the NCAA tournament four times. Let's be honest, though. Blaine doesn't need any further introduction. Welcome to the best and only OU podcast. <laughs> I'm Blaine. <laughs> uh, it's nice to be here, guys. Uh, I have to tell everybody I, I met you guys. We, we sat down at uh, Taylor Heineke's uh, awards dinner at the Norfolk Sports Club Jamboree and we just accidentally sat together and sat and chatted most of the night, and you guys threatened to chase down and be on the, the show, and here we are. Well, we're so thankful you joined us today, Blaine. We feel blessed to be able to talk with you and kind of take a walk down memory lane in March Madness. Um, but before we get to those former great games, today a story broke out that the only program to offer Giannis Antetokounmpo was Old Dominion. And if we look at the timeline, there's only one coach who could have made that offer, and it's you. Could you take us back to that time? Well, if, if that had happened, I'd still be coaching. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, at the time, we were doing a lot of international recruiting. Somebody reached out to me today and says, hey, did you do that? And I said, well, I don't know who else would have done it. We're the only ones that really recruited internationally a lot. And and really, Allison Green, who was an assistant women's coach, was the one that really helped me get started overseas. And so uh, if you look over in Europe, you know, all the players that we had from over in that area, you know, we easily could have been involved with him. But I honestly, I, it's not like I sit there, you know, nights wondering why we didn't have that happen. And and I can't even verify for sure that you know, it was me that actually said it to him. All right, Coach. So March Madness for ODU in your days always started in the big brown dump. I I mean, the Richmond Coliseum, you know, your teams created lots of memories there for all of Monarch Nation. Do you have a particularly favorite memory from any of those games? It's funny you call it the brown dump because we would we would turn a, a, a sow's ear into a silk purse by the end of the weekend. Uh <laughs> They put a little money into that facility from time to time, but you know, I you get about twelve thousand people in there. We got where the semis and the finals were standing room only, and national TV, and uh, so there are some great memories. I think the one that sticks out in my mind that a lot of the fans remember very well is is our very first uh, championship. Uh, we had struggled trying to get our footing in 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 my early years. We got the constant center opened. We got quite good. Uh, and we're really disappointed we didn't get an NIT bid. You know, my third year, we, we were really close. And then my fourth year, uh, it all came together and we won the tournament. But we played uh, uh, VCU in Richmond in overtime. And we had a play in that game that was the play of the game in the whole country. If you recall, on Monday night, you would have the Missouri Valley the CAA, and then you would have the West Coast Conference. And those were the three early tournaments. And so we had the play where Alex Loughton threw the ball over the top uh, to Isaiah Hunter, dunked it, and one foul. The whole place was going crazy. And you saw that play about 100 times as the play of the day 
because then they didn't have games Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It was to, up until the weekend before the tournament started. So we, we just got a lot of, a lot of uh, publicity out of that. And the people now have been in Frisco and Pensacola. We used to complain about that tournament in Richmond because we always had to beat BCU there. But uh, now people look back so fondly with how accessible it was and the size of the crowds and, and the, the number of teams that we played that there was a, a history with. Yeah, we really didn't know how good we had it until we didn't have it. <laughs> well, that's true. You know, everybody complained. And then all of a sudden when it was gone, they go, man, that was the greatest. Uh, but <laughs> it's, uh, I still have people come up and tell me, I don't know how many people I hugged after all those championships because back, you know, we won, we had about, I don't know, memory number of years there where we were doing pretty doggone good. And, and, and we won the championship there. All our fans would storm the court. And I have people coming up to me left and right. You know, I, I, I you know, you hugged me after the game. You hugged me after the game. And, and then I have people come up and they have teenage kids. And they show me pictures of me and their teenage kid. Or, or excuse me, their teenage kid when the kid was like two years old. <laughs> <laughs> and and now here these they still have the pictures and uh, of course I was a little heavier than that hey the picture you guys had promo in the show uh wasn't the most complimentary I know it was just it had an NCAA logo in the background I'm just gonna have to say that that wasn't me yeah it was me <laughs> I did it because of the stash I am currently growing mine back after a barbershop accident but I was a big fan of the stash well, the stash, I had that stash, for, you know, when I was a head coach at the age of 31. And so I tried to look older because I was you know, kind of competing against all these other guys. So I grew that mustache. Well, then years later, I cut that mustache and I didn't realize that, that my kids had never seen me without a mustache. They looked at me so crazy and they said, Dad, you got to grow that back. You look awful. And uh, but the best mustache story, I think, is. Um, we go to JMU and we're in position to clinch the regular season championship. I never came out of the locker room before the game because the fans had always you know, yelling at me and every, everywhere we went. And so I came down at, at right before tip off and I walk over and all of my assistants are sitting there with their hands over their face and I'm walk up and, and, and I, I go, what the heck's going on? And they all uncovered and they had fake mustaches on these big fake mustaches. <laughs> They had distributed through the whole stadium. They had fake mustaches through the whole game. I mean, they had thousands of them. And the whole the whole game, they had all these fake mustaches going. We still beat them in the championship, but it was it was a, a good memory. All right. So you touched on it a little bit earlier. Those trips to Richmond Coliseum, they always had us and VCU locking heads. One of the memories that fans have asked about is the chaos full court press. When did you figure out? how to break that press and how long did it take the team to kind of figure it out? Uh, it took me a, a, a few years because they were under some different coaches and, and they tried to press uh, even Anthony Grant had come from the, with, with Billy and those guys down in Florida and uh, Patino and all that stuff. So there was some pressing, but what, what Chaka did was more extreme and they were really good at it. I had to shake my head the year that, they ran through the NCAA tournament. We had beaten them badly in Richmond twice at the end of the year. Uh, so we had solved the press, but in the NCAA tournament, everybody underprepared for them. Uh, the one thing that I told our guys is when you were playing BCU and you're up seven 
you better plan on getting up 14. Don't think you're going to hold on to a seven-point lead because the minute you got conservative, that just fueled that press. Yeah, they just were like piranha. And I thought that we got to where we attacked it. I always told them, we'll always take a layup and we'll always take a look. And you see so many teams that just try to get the ball down the floor. And so we got to where we'd come down and dunk the ball on them, lay it up on them. We'd even shoot the three if it was there with board coverage. So we, we played in a, in a disciplined fashion, but a very opportunistic fashion. The other thing that we did is we adjusted how many people brought the ball down the floor. Uh, we didn't just put it on our, our point guard because they'd wear you out by the end of the night. And so somebody like Gerald Lee, who I would have at the center position at times, we'd clear the court and have him bring the ball down the floor. So it would basically negate their press. So we had a lot of different things that we, we saw where it was weak, probably better than the national audience. So, Coach, going back to this uh teams we obviously had a number of ncaa tournament quality teams at what point in the season did you and your staff know that you had a team that was very capable and probably had the goods to be an ncaa team there's some different signs and signals sometimes it's says we used to have a drill on friday mornings i would walk into the practice facility at the time the Jarrett building and at 7 30 sharp we would run 20 suicide lines in 20 minutes. And we would do that in the off season. And my first year there, uh, you know, about three guys could do it. And as we got better, we got to ver where virtually the whole team could do it. And when, when you would experience the uh, esprit de corps and the confidence and the toughness that that drill brings out in a group, kind of galvanized, and you could walk out of the gym at, you know, eight o'clock, after 20 suicide runs and go, you know, this group's got a chance to, 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 to go nose to nose with some guys. And so sometimes you can even have a sense in the off season of what you have, but you're never, you're, you're never hardened uh, like a good steel until you get into the fire. And so uh, you, you'll have some, some things happen in practice where there's some really, you know, keen moments and you go, wow, we can really get to end to end. We can really get on the glass. Uh, geez, we were really developing some depth. Uh, hey, this young player really has come along. And we got to the point where I pretty much counted on us being a contender and a potential postseason team for, oh, geez, I want to say, you know, eight, nine years in a row, we were we, we were going to be in the top, you know, these play-in games they have in these tournaments now. I, I never played in any of those play-in games ever. And so we were always a, a threat then. And, and so you, you, would, you would then have that game. Uh, beating Georgetown at Georgetown, you know, you would, you would have that game. Uh, you'd have that moment. You would, sometimes it was beating not a great team after having a average performance and you'd go, you know what, we have the ability to win ugly. We have the ability to come from behind. We have the ability. And then, you know, as John Wooden used to say, you got to be at your best when your best is needed. Some teams look pretty good against bad teams, look pretty good at home. But, you know, when you all of a sudden see guys rise up at the right times to make shots, make plays, uh, you know, you start getting those indicators. And I could usually tell by December if we were going to get for real. And then in January, and I always prided, if you go back and look at the record, we were really good in February. We would start climbing. And then I always told the guys, men win in March. 
And there's a lot of pretenders that show up in March and go home early. But, you know, I was really proud. And this is uh, something I mentioned to you, Aaron, Mike. Um, the When I was in college, in my four years, I was a starting point guard as a sophomore. Uh, we played in the tournament championship game three of my four years. We were headed to the NC2As. We had the fourth pick in the first round of the NBA draft that played in the same backcourt. And we lost all three of those games. And so I thought one of the things that I did um, was I learned what kids felt and what pressure felt like and what that elite performance, the things that maybe held you back. And um, I, I thought that once we got in position to be good, we typically went all the way. I really pride myself in the fact that in conference championship games as a head coach, virtually won every one of them. Uh, we didn't we didn't finish second. When we got to that point, we, we went for the gold. All right. So taking this back to 2009, you lead the team to a CIT championship. I want to know what you think that championship run at the CIT, how much did that impact the 2010 team that eventually upset Notre Dame and made it to the second round? the tournament well there's a lot of different opinions i mean sometimes people look down their nose at the nit but there was the other tournaments that emerged and the cit uh emerged there was 23 24 teams in that field that was not a light field now you've got a lot of different tournaments that have emerged and you know the quality of the field and winning the championship but we ended up on national television at bradley you know really strong missouri valley setting in front of I want to say there was almost nine, 10,000 people at the game. And so we had a young team. They, they came back and, you know, went to the NC2As the next couple of years. That young team, that run really set the stage. And one of the young players, uh, Frank Cassell, uh, was just a sophomore. And I remember being in the interview room and we got behind Bradley pretty big early in the game. And Frank was just, you know, just as genuine and easy a talker as you'd ever want to be around. And they says, when you got behind early, he says, you didn't, did you get worried? And he, and, he, and he pointed over at me and said, well, he didn't look worried, so we weren't worried. And uh, so it was just a young team reading their coach, reading each other and, and fighting uphill. And then, the, and then they started getting very good. And uh, yeah, I guess you start doing things like when we went to the Virgin Islands and won the championship down in St. Thomas, all of a sudden you beat the likes of a Clemson in the semis and Xavier was really good back in those days, uh, beat them in the championship. So you do that kind of stuff. Uh, you, you know, everything kind of starts to, to build and you start growing. Uh, my regret, we got good enough to be an NCAA uh, contender. The first year we were in the NC2As against Michigan State, it was the highest scoring first round game in the whole tournament. And we pressed Michigan State. We're ahead eight at half. And, and we just weren't experienced enough. They had, they went to the final four that year. They had all of these guys that had been big 10 champs for the last whatever and been to postseason play and, and we had guys who had just emerged on the scene now when you flash forward when we got to 10 and 11 we, we had the same quality of players but we had more experience and momentum in in, in in playing you know national uh you know caliber teams and, and beating prominent people and so my one regret is we were good enough to make a long run in the ncaa tournament 
and just kept, you know, kind of shooting ourselves in the foot or running in really as much as anything ran into the wrong opponent. Uh, you know, if you would think during those years, George Mason goes to the final four, VCU goes to the final four. And one of the things that I point out to people when they ask me about that, I says, well, they didn't win our league and they didn't win our tournament and they ended up in the final four. That's how strong the CAA was at that time. All right, coach. So let's go ahead and jump ahead to that point. Butler, Monarch Nation, we talk about this all the time. We're probably as scarred as you guys were from, well, we'll say Butler, too, with the tipping at the end. Uh, that year, VCU goes to the Final Four. You guys kicked VCU's butt a ton that year. Talk to us a little bit about that game and kind of from the coaches and players' perspectives, how that played out. Well, there's a little history. Uh, you know, Brad Stevens, you know, by virtue of the wins that Butler had in postseason play, you turn around and he's the coach of the Celtics. I'm sitting here going, well, Jesus, you know, if we win those games, maybe I'd be on the Celtics. No, not really. <laughs> uh, but Butler had beaten us in Buffalo uh, prior. Uh, and uh, I don't know what year we got an at-large berth. I, I, but anyway, we were up five late in the game. We had a breakaway layup with Brandon Johnson, and he kind of nonchalanted it. And they knocked it out of bounds. So we didn't get the layup that would have put us up seven. They turn around and had a guy hit two bombs. And all of a sudden, as the clock's running down, we're down one and stayed up seven and uh, narrowly got beat. So now you're playing Butler again, and, and they're good. They go to the national championship game. and But so are we. And we've won in the NCAA tournament before, and I think we could have, have gone farther. And the ironic thing about it is we led the nation in rebounding. We were, you know, I, I have a big wooden plaque that's in the locker room somewhere over at Old Dominion that we led the nation. I mean, the number one rebounding team out of 350 schools. And we have three of the best rebounders in the country with their mitts, all six hands surrounding this ball. And, 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 and the, the dude comes from the top of the key that can hardly touch the rim and his hand sticks up the between all these hands and just doinks the ball with 0.2 seconds to go. And as a kid, you watch all of these March Madness videos and the, the, we are the champions and all this stuff. And you imagine you being in one of those magic moments. You don't imagine it being against you. And they, I got, I, I watched that thing way too many times by surprise when people would play that, 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 and, and that was a heartbreaker. That, that was really hard on me. I mean, there was some, when I started, you know, going in a spiral the wrong direction in life, that sure didn't help my, my side. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a tough one. And, and I think it, it's amazing how many people remember that because uh, there's always these great moments in your program's history, but there's pivotal moments. And some of them are the heartbreaking moments. Yeah, I think that one is probably particularly remembered just because of where VCU ended up. And most of us were in Richmond, so we had seen – that play out and we're like, oh, if this plays out the right way and maybe we're playing VCU in the final four and we would have kicked their ass again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was hard to watch and Shaka is, you know, good friend. Now he called me the other day, I spent a half an hour on the phone with him. Um, but uh, uh, it was hard to watch because we had gone to Richmond and beaten them on their home court double digits late in the year. And then in the tournament, we were up 18 at half against him in the championship game. And I remember being in the post uh, game interview room and Virginia tech was clamoring for an at large bid, clamoring for an at large bid. And, and that's when I had the statement, I says, you know, Virginia tech is just, 
you know, big hat, no horse. I mean, oh, I'm tired of listening to them. I said, that team that we just beat out there in the championship game, I think if they got a bid, they could win games. Well, lo and behold, they get, you know, that's when the field went to 68 and they got in that play-in game and beat USC. And so uh, we had their number. Um, we, you know, we, I, if we'd played them again, I'd bet my bottom dollar that, that, that we'd have been able to go for it again, but, uh, you have to take your hat off. They, they, they played the bracket the way it came to them and, and they made the, the most out of it. They really did. Coach, you were mentioning rebounding and how much of a factor it was that season. Obviously rebounding is always a big factor of how successful your teams are. And it was a factor against Notre Dame. Can you talk to us about that game? Well, Notre Dame had played at pace, and everybody had chased them around. And Mike Bray, of course, was doing a really good job there. And they had Luke Heron Goody, who was the Big East Player of the Year at that time. They weren't in the ACC then. And so we're playing them, and they're taking their time chasing around. And I finally said, heck with it. I went back into a zone, and nobody had dared zone them. And we were good with, we had like four different zones we could run and we were big as all get out. We were one of the biggest teams in the country. And so they struggled because they had to come to us at some point and everybody in the big East just played their game. We made them come and play a different game than they were accustomed to. But the process of the game, we, you know, we played a good back and forth game, but Luke Heron Goody did not score until he put the 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 basket in with two seconds to go uh and you know he was big east player of the year but the, the the thing that i remember is is we were up three they had the ball and a lot of people will foul in the last seconds these days and a lot of the international coaches that i've been with think we're crazy in the united states because we don't foul enough late in the game and so the guys came over and I turned to my assistants and I says, we could foul, but we've never practiced it. We always had so much pride in our defense that we're going to stop you. So I walked into the huddle and I said to the guys, I says, you know, there's some people that would foul in this circumstance because I always wanted the kids empowered to be a part of the decisions when they were really big. And I says, we could foul. And they all just screamed back at me. We're going to stop them. I said, all right. So we go out there and, and they shot a three-pointer out of the left corner that just ringed around and Aaron Goody put it back in and the buzzer blew and we ran off. So uh, a great memory. And, and the thing that was interesting about it is it was Notre Dame at, and it was St. Patty's Day uh, right about then down. And, and I still think there's some, some of those uh, Notre Dame fans wandering around down there on Bourbon Street. <laughs> Coach, a couple of minutes ago, you you mentioned Frank Cassell. So I know the game is a little bit different these days with the transfer portal and the movement of players so much. So you had guys like Ken Bazemore and Frank who took huge steps each year. It seemed like they come back, and I don't know if they played basketball 23 hours a day over the summer or what it was. How did you manage to develop those guys over the course of – you know, four or five years in that case. And do you think that we won't really see that type of stuff as much anymore in the college game? Well, when I interviewed um, here and I had some different schools that I interviewed with, uh, I told them um, I've been trained to build programs from the ground up. 
And if you want somebody just to come in and hit a lick and, you know, jump in and out of here, then I'm not your guy. But I'd been framed. Chad Heathcote uh, went to Michigan State. He recruited me to Montana. I was the last kid he signed before he went to Michigan State. Um, and then Mike Montgomery, Stu Morrill. So I, the people I'd been around are Hall of Fame type dudes, people that have won national championships. So, so, but a lot of red shirting, a lot of player development, a lot of patience of, of kids getting better. Um, and we really benefited from the loyalty the kids had. We did not lose a lot of kids. I did not take uh, transfers. If you go back and look at, at, at the 12 years, that wasn't our roster. Um, and I think it, it really, one of the things is we were the number one family activity in Hampton Roads. The Constance Center and, and, and the little kids and the families and the businesses and you know people really connected with, with the teams. And uh, part of that was the continuity, uh, getting to know the kids. Kent Bazemore, uh, five years, two degrees. I don't know if he's, you know, in the NBA for 13 years, if he doesn't have all of that experience. Frank, I don't know if he gets as good if he had bounced around to two or three different schools. Uh, but uh, in today's world, it is different. And you see a lot of people. Um, oh, you, you'd look at Bob McKillop stepping away at Davidson. You look at uh, Jay stepping away at Villanova. And, 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 and you see some guys that just say, you know, I just don't know if I want to deal with all that you're dealing with today. Uh, if I had to deal with it today, I would, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And, you know, I'd be the best Roman in town. I'd adapt. Uh, so I, I think that's what you have to do. But it is a different mission statement. And, and it's hard for your fans to identify with kids coming and going. Uh, academically, it can't make a lot of sense. Uh, and I, I think there's some kids that maybe benefit from it, but they're in the minority. There's way too many kids that are thinking that I used to say the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence, but you still got to mow it. <laughs> so it, it is a different time we live in now. And I think uh, uh, it, 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 it's harder. Uh, I have some guys that I worked with and stuff that are dealing with it and, and they're winning uh, and they're putting teams together, but it's in a different fashion than what we were accustomed to, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I got to imagine when you build from scratch like you did, it's got to be pretty rewarding in the end when you make something happen as a group. Well, the relationships uh, are stronger. I mean, the fans have a better relationship, the academic uh, relationship. Uh, you know, I'll mention a player. I remember uh, we used to have the Meet the Monarchs Bank, but we started that. And uh, Isaiah Hunter, uh, he was interviewed as a, as a young freshman and very young uh, and, and immature. And so... Uh, John Castleberry's interview him and says, you know, what do you think about academics? And he says, well, I don't, you know, I didn't come here to go to school. I came here to play basketball. I don't really care about school, you know, and, and everybody, there was, the, you know, I got the president and the AD and I got the dean of a bunch of different schools there. And I'm like, oh no. And, 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 and we're walking out of there. And he says, Isaiah says to me, he says, my mom's going to kill me. I can't believe I said that. And, and now he has a master's degree. He has two degrees from Old Dominion. You know, he grew up. And so those kinds of stories aren't quite as prevalent today. Uh, and, and that's kind of a shame. Uh, but it doesn't mean you can't get from here to there. Uh, there's a lot of good stories that go with baby people getting their footing at a you know, fresh start. And uh, so, I, you know, I don't want to cast too much judgment on everything that's going on today. But uh, you, you certainly have to adapt. So if we go back 
and look at all these teams that you've led to the NCAA tournament. You got Alex and the rest of the guys in 04 who go to, to Michigan State and give them a run for their money. You got Valdis and Dahi going against Butler. You got the guys that lost at the tip end to Butler. And you got the same guys that beat Notre Dame. You got Frank and Gerald and Bays, Finney, a lot of great guys. If you could pick one of those teams that you took to the tournament and go in a time machine and let's say, let's do it all over again, but let's win this time, who are you picking? Well, I've been fortunate. I've been at four different schools, and at all four places, we won back-to-back championships. And winning back-to-back championships is, is really hard. There, there's a certain, certain magic potion to doing that. Uh, and so as I value the teams here at Old Dominion, the, the, the old, I think, old six or whatever it is, that group, if they were to play the 10 and 11 group, if those two groups played each other, that would be one heck of a game. And each of those groups can arguably say that they're as good as any team in the history of the school. Now, there's other teams that would argue, and I'm not saying they are, but arguably either of those groups is. The one advantage that the 10-11 group had was the experience of the people that had come before them. And they did win back to back. And so you kind of have to take your hat off to, to that bunch. The also the thing that that group had was back to back players of the year in the tournament. You know, one year Gerald Lee, one year Frank Cassell. And, you know, even as as much as I love Kent Bazemore, and he plays 13 years in the NBA, there was many nights that he was just one of our top four players. He wasn't, he wasn't just the spotlight guy. We had, we had, you know, Ben Finney was as, as tough a rebounder and defender as you'd ever want to be around. And we had really good bench players. We had really good size. And so that group, it was very um, uh, significant in the fact they went back to back at a time when the league was multiple bids. And, and so those two groups, I, I'd, I'd be splitting hairs to say, I think one would beat the other. Can you imagine you know, Loughton playing head-to-head with Gerald Lee? Wouldn't that be something? You know, can you, can you, yeah. I mean, there, there, there'd be, there's a, there'd be some interesting stuff going on in a game between those two bunches. And, and yet there's a camaraderie there that uh, they, they, there's a love that we all kind of share a bond of, of, you know, making old dominion that used to, old dominion used to be script. The president would only let you put old dominion in script on a shirt. And, and we made ODU a brand. So coach, you just talked about some of those players that were just tough. You had some tough players. And if you had to name your top three or four players that you knew were never going to be intimidated by, especially let's say VCU, because VCU played in a, a manner that if you were weak, you were going to get exposed. So name a few of those players that kind of set the tone for your teams. Well, I think uh, it, there's a different types of toughness. Um, I, 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 when, when you say tough, I mean, the first name that pops off, and I think his teammates, is, is, is Ben Finney was, you know, he, the first time I uh, looked after him, I, he, he's playing football and he had like, 18 catches uh, for 186 or 286 yards or something. Then I watched him in summer league and he has like 23 rebounds. He was just tough. And, and I was hard on him. 
And I, and he said, coach, you know, I'm, and I says, Hey man, if I can be hard on the toughest guy on the team, just imagine what's going to happen with this team. And so now, now Drew Williamson was extremely tough minded as a point guard, you know, that as a freshman, he goes to the, the tournament and plays three games without a turnover. Imagine a point guard in our system, flying up and down the floor, running sets, getting the ball to the right guys at the right time and not turning the ball over. He had won three state championships in North Carolina, two in football, one in basketball. So there was a certain t- mental toughness, Ben Finney. And then, then there was uh Baldus Basilius. Uh, his name pops up in my mind. He just was rugged. I remember we went on a tour to London and we played like four games over there. And at the end of every game, all these pros and all these guys, you know, from all over Europe that were playing in London, they all wanted to fight him by the time they got to the end of the game. And he's just looking at him with this quizzical look like, what? This is just how I play. I don't know. What's the problem with you guys? And, and, and he just was rugged. He, you know, he just was you know, flipping and flopping around and flailing. And uh, so those are three guys that come to mind. But when you're as good as, as we were, uh, we had a kid by the name of John Morris who did not get a lot of publicity, but he was as hard of my, I, I recruited him specifically because I wanted a guy who would fight you every day in practice and hold everybody on the team accountable. And so I went up to little Trinity high school. They had shamrocks on their uniform up in Pennsylvania. And I said, that little redheaded Irishman is the guy I need. And he would come in there. And if you weren't ready to play, he'd nail you. And uh, so when you talk, there's some different types of toughness that kind of stirs the pot. All right, Coach. So if you're talking about toughness, you're a former point guard. You had a number of great point guards play for you. But you also constantly had a great big man on your team. Do you think you need to have both to be a tournament squad? Or could you have gotten by with just having great big men? Well, I thought we could beat you out in different ways. I thought we could beat you with our size in the interior. I, you know, we could beat you with jump shots if we had to. We could drive the ball. We could beat you down the floor. I mean, we were fast up and down the floor. We could, you know, we broke the school record for steals. We could press. We could beat you on the glass. We had good depth. Um, and we could guard you know, good defensively. Uh, so I, I thought what's more important, I, I think all of it makes you a formidable opponent. For instance, we could go huge. We could play Gerald Lee at the three. I could have him play some point guard once in a while. He's 6'10". I could play three point guards together, and we did with Drew Williamson, Isaiah Hunter, and Brandon Johnson. And we could go really small and just cut you up. And so I, it's not as if we just went small, just went big, just played through the post, just shot threes. I, I thought we were multidimensional. And I thought that's why we could play in a tournament three straight days against different teams and not have to like reinvent the wheel every day. Our system could handle whatever came at us, especially late in the year. We'd pretty much seen most everything. And I would go, you know, you talked about VCU earlier. Um, I would go uh, search out uh, a team or two that pressed in the non-conference. I wanted us to go play like uh, Mike Anderson, who was at Arkansas. Uh, you know, we when, when he was at Missouri, I wanted to go play those kind of guys. Uh, you know, the, they, they used to call it 40 minutes of hell. 
you know, I wanted to go play those kind of guys to prepare us for league and then for whatever we might see down the line. So uh, I think my days of big guys, um, I had an all league big guy for like 20 some years. Now, it doesn't mean that we just threw the ball to him and everybody just stood and watched him, but but that we could play through them. We could put we could break down the defense with interior touches. Right now, everybody's trying to get the ball to the interior off the dribble. We could get it to the interior and break down the defense off of the dribble or the pass. And so I thought that made us more more uh, multidimensional and, and also a little more effective against uh, – different uh, zones, different trapping scenarios. So, yeah, we could come in behind you with some bulk and dunk the ball and rebound and put it back and all that kind of stuff. So, Coach, you just mentioned something pretty interesting to me in that you sought out opponents early in the season to prepare you for VCU. And today I was listening to a podcast that Doug Gottlieb had had Shaka Smart on, and he was talking about in their final four run how teams – just hadn't seen teams like his team. And he was you know, talking in particular like Purdue. They just weren't used to seeing that and really didn't know what to do in those moments. So kind of getting back to the NCAA tournament vibe at the, let's say, at the G5 level, do you think it's important for a team to have a bit of a different look that those P5 teams are going to come across that they're not quite so used to seeing or playing against those styles to be successful in um, to make a run in the tournament. Well, you can't be terminally unique, but being different is is. They always talk about it in football matchups. You know, these guys are running the triple option and the veer, and, and these guys are running the West Coast offense. And so, in in football, you've got this this these these preparations. In basketball, you might bounce in a in, in an NCAA tournament. You play Thursday, and you're flipping around playing Saturday, not next next weekend. And so these matchups can sneak up on you. And, and I thought that particular year that I'm watching people play BCU and I'm shaking my head like, you know, that guy is not a bad coach. He's not stupid, but they are absolutely playing BCU ass backwards. And they did it over and over. And, and, and I even ran into shock later on. He said, can you believe how those guys played us? You know, and that guy's the Big Ten coach of the year. You know, that guy's a big 12 coach of the year. I mean, you know, so they, they just didn't know what they were getting into. And shock at that time, he hasn't even been able to replicate exactly that style at Texas or Marquette. Now, he's doing really well at Marquette now, and I'm happy for him. Uh, but uh, that that was really unique at the time. Now, what they d- didn't what you don't realize is what they were doing with the press is one thing that caught everybody off guard because they're flying around. And he really couldn't get the high-priced recruits to do to play as hard as those kids did. But they had a five-man who got a hot hand, and they all of a sudden had their center that they were rolling up to the top of the key and shooting three-pointers. And that, as much as the press, opened the court up, and all of a sudden teams were being pressed, and they're behind. You know, they, they played from in front of people with a lot of, you know, no pun intended, a lot of shock value. They, <laughs> a lot of shock of value. They, 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 they got in front of people and people are like, well, wait a second. And they're still pressing us. Usually people press you behind and they're still shooting threes. Well, it's, it's what they did. It wasn't like, Hey, we're just trying to surprise you in league. They finished fourth in league 
And to be honest with you, they were calling for Shaka's head before the uh, conference tournament. I remember Shaka goes in and he burns the uh, stat sheet for his kids. Like, okay, this is over. And somehow they miraculously got to the championship game. And then they really, you know, cut a rug. So that's what can happen. I, I think that what you don't want, here, here's what I think is, is kind of bad with March. Everybody wants to be that sixth or eighth or ninth, 11th seed that has the miracle, you know, run. And, and I don't think that that's what you should try to do in November, December, January, February. I, I want to get in, I want to contend for a regular season championship and, and have, I mean, I have 11 championship rings from my years uh, coaching and, um, you know, I think to get good, you need to get good all year, not just try to be a one weekend wonder. Now, when you're trying to be that team that's good all year round, what is the biggest challenge to taking that team to a tournament setting? Well, street smarts. I, I think you see way too many people um, go to tournaments. They talk a good game. This is our shot. And then they get there and they just get stage fright. There's just so much on the line. Maybe you get behind and you just go, oh, man, this is the way our season is going to end. Because it's it's a heartbreaker and uh, it's stunning, it's shocking when it happens. So you've you've got to get kind of your nose bloodied a little bit. I always sought out good, strong tournaments. I, I, I sought out good, pressure packed games. I think competing for a regular season championship puts pressure on you. You know, there's these teams that are playing for seventh, eighth, and ninth, and sixth, and fifth, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not playing for all the marbles, so they're playing pretty loose. When you're playing for first and second you know, all year long, there's pressure, and I think all of that steals you. It, it girds you for the challenge. And then you know, the experience and continuity of, like when we won the, uh, the, the tournament down in the Virgin Islands, uh, that's the kind of tournament that you want to go down and win and say, hey, that three straight days, you got to beat power five teams. That's what it's going to be like in the, uh, in the NCAAs. So how do you get ready for it? You don't have any holes in your armor. You don't want to be press vulnerable. You don't want to be zoned vulnerable. You want to be able to run. You want to, you, you've got to be able to have a catch up offense. If you get behind, you don't have to run and shoot all the time. You got to be able to get the ball down the floor and, and, and utilize the clock. You got to be able to make free throws. You got to be able to shoot threes. If it's demanded, you got to be able to bang in the paint. You got to be able to out rebound people. So, you know, the, the way to do that is to not have any holes in your armor. And, and I thought that when our teams got there, I slept at night knowing, Hey, when, when our guys show up, they'll leave with no regrets and no matter what the the team does we'll have a response all right coach you have all these amazing memories at old dominion that you built for i mean you gave us a lot of memories as fans is there a specific memory that jumps out to you in old dominion that you look back fondly on who worked so hard to get to the winner's circle and uh my memory uh of cutting nets down in the virgin islands and in the uh, richmond coliseum uh, and, and when you're the head coach, you're the last one up the ladder. And when you cut that last loop, you know, you get pretty good if you do it a number of times. But looking down at the kids on the team and the fans and what what they had all shared that experience, you just feel like you, you've really done something special. 
and and you just can't take it take that away from you and you know i've won championships here and there at other schools and at stanford montana and at, at uc irvine but it was really special to come here because when i came the constant center was being built the the, the everything was at a low ebb and the constant center changed the school i don't believe we would have started football if that hadn't been a success uh, and it just changed the presentation of the school to the community to the region uh to the country and so to look down and 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 see that uh that that that's that's just a great memory there's a picture in my office actually that was given to me of of the very first championship of of uh, of uh, up on a ladder with the the uh, CA logo in the back and and uh, that's a great memory. Actually, I, I walked into the copy machine. I work at the foundation, of course, and I walk into the copy machine. And of course, I'm not exactly the IT guy around there. And I look above the copy machine, and there is a picture of Kaya Thomas kissing a trophy in the in, in the Coliseum. And I go, I've never seen that picture in my life. And, and that's on the wall there in the foundation. And, and I'm going to steal it and put it in my office one of these days. So this is, you know, if it comes missing, they know where it went. Nice. All right. So you're obviously at ODAF. We're so thrilled that you've come home to Old Dominion. Can you talk to Monarch Nation a little bit about what you're doing with ODAF and how people can, can get involved and help take the program to the next level? Well, when I when I came out with my bachelor's degree, I was going to go to law school and I had all the places I had visited. I was going to go to law school. And then at the last second, I went and got my master's in athletic administration. And so it didn't make me any smarter than anybody in regards to athletic administration, but I became a student. And so uh, when I was the head coach at Montana. I, I kind of watched all the, the way this, the, the athletic department and the media and the fundraising. And I was very involved. Uh, we were in seven. I mean, I had my own television show that I owned through LLC that was in 17 markets. Uh, and then when I went to Stanford, I learned a lot about philanthropy. And when I came to Old Dominion, we endowed the whole men's basketball program for the most part. And so I'd always had an eye on things besides the court. And so when it came time after the pandemic, I went and got a, a anchor replaced and I went and kind of laid up in Vegas for a year, kind of waiting to see what was going to go on with the pandemic. Uh, I had a chance to go to Chicago. A headhunter had called me and I was going to go to DePaul perhaps. And then I was invited to, to by the vice chancellor at, at, at Irvine to consider coming back there. And, and then, then out of the blue, this thing came. And, and what a blessing. Uh, I am reminded every day when I just run into people, uh, I had dinner last night with some fans, uh, Ben and Jackie Richards, for instance. I had dinner with them down at Freemason Abbey. Great fans, great memories. And, you know, uh, it's just the kind of thing that just warms your heart that you get a chance to come back. And, and, and I never would have saw those people again. I never would have rekindled or renewed all those relationships and all those memories. So for me, I'm getting way more out of it than I'm, than I'm giving. I can tell you that. It's, uh, and, and so the foundation, I worked hand in hand with Ed Frame, Mark Benson, 
Alonzo Brandon was there. Jenna Verga came on at one time. But I work for Jenna in Wood Sea League, and I work with a great group of people. And I'm just I'm just loving it. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the ODU setting. Uh, it's it's got it. You got I've always liked being on college campuses because it keeps you young, and 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 I, there's a youthful element. And so I always have this saying when when I went, people say. I said, you know, you're growing old when your regrets replace your dreams. I still have dreams. And, and this has been a dream come true to come back here. And, hey, I've got a fiance and I'm engaged to be married. And, you know, I'm 60 some years young and, uh, you know, I got a lot of life ahead of me. Well, congratulations on the engagement and thank you for coming back. It makes me smile every time I see you walking around the TED. So I imagine a lot of other fans feel the same way. We're all big fans of yours, and we're happy for you and your successes. Well, thank you so much, Mike, Aaron. This has been a real treat. So we'll see you. See you down the trail. All right. See you, Coach. Thanks again. You betcha. Go Monarchs. Go Monarchs. Go Monarchs. Go Monarchs.